0: Pillotron <laughs> So today is December first. Do you know what that means? It's
1: first of the month.
0: Yeah, but do you know what that means? No, what? Holiday music all day every day. Like all day, every day. Like as soon as we're done with this, it's going on the um the Bluetooth speaker. No. Yeah. No. In the car, in the shower, in the when we're going to sleep, when we're cooking, all day, every day.
1: You don't have a speaker for the shower.
0: I'm going to get one. I have one on the Amazon list right now. Well, I'm sure you do. Amazon packages every day. Who's with me?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: All right, guys. Well, let's jump into this week's episode. When 29 year old Jacob Millicent went missing, his family was adamant that he was fine. They were so calm and assured in their testimonies that the police in Gunnison, Colorado, closed their investigation into his disappearance after just one interview. But Jake's friends knew there had to be more to the story and pushed for years to get justice for Jake. This story is one full of sibling rivalry, family greed, and the fight for answers from friends who loved Jake more than his own family. In 1964, a World War II veteran named Marion Rudabaugh bought 700 acres of land just outside the small town of Gunnison, Colorado. The town sits along the western slope of the Rocky Mountains in a valley, making it one of the coldest places in the United States during the winters. Gunnison is the home of Western Colorado University, and the students make up much of the population. There are about 6,500 locals who live in the town year-round. Marion Rudabaugh, or Rudy, as he was known to locals and visitors, named his 700 acres of land the 7-Eleven Ranch. On the ranch, he set up cabins for people to rent, had campsites, and led horseback riding trips. But primarily, the ranch was used for hunting, and Rudy hosted hunting parties throughout the year. Rudy's whole life was dedicated to the ranch and the business he had built from it. It was something he loved doing and was always willing to put in the effort to keep it running. Rudy had always been a hard worker. People in town called him a tough little turd, a description he earned from the year he spent as a frogman in World War II. A woman by the name of Deborah Millison moved to Gunnison in the mid-'80s from Ohio, At the time, she was married to Ray Millicent, and they had two children, Jacob, who was about six, and Stephanie, who was a year older, at seven. Deborah had visited Gunnison when she was a child and loved it, and dreamed of returning to run her own ranch. To help achieve this dream, Deborah started working for Rudy at the 7-Eleven ranch. For years, the Millicents were happy in Gunnison, but by 1992, things had grown too difficult in her marriage, and Deborah and Ray filed for divorce. As a result of the separation, Ray moved to New Mexico, but kept in touch with his kids who remained living with their mother. Deborah had worked closely with Rudy over the years she had worked there, becoming his go-to person for any trouble at the ranch. After her divorce, their relationship changed from professional to romantic, and Deborah married Rudy in 1993. Rudy was nearly 25 years older than her, but that didn't matter to Deb. After their marriage, Deborah began living on the ranch with Stephanie and Jake, her kids, both now in their early teens. Deborah had been homeschooling them, partially so that they could dedicate more time to helping running the ranch. The kids didn't mind this much. They loved the ranch, and they were fond of Rudy. Life on the ranch was hardly normal. For example, when Jake and Stephanie were little, Rudy and Deborah bought an African lion cub that they kept chained in the horse corral on the property. They would feed it roadkill and let it play in the area. Neighbors didn't like this though, because the cub would scare their livestock and make loud noises. Well, one day, someone drove past the ranch and shot the cub, killing it. Over time, as Rudy got older, Jake was expected to pick up the slack on the farm, often being the only one who was able to complete the necessary task to keep the ranch running. This was hard on Jake, but he loved the ranch and felt compelled to help his family. As a teenager, Jake was finally allowed to attend public school for the first time. Having spent much of his life on the ranch, Jake struggled at first to adapt. In fact, early on, he got in trouble for bringing a rifle to school in the back of his pickup truck. Jake wasn't violent at all, he just didn't know you weren't supposed to bring guns to school, and he was used to having the rifle around for his work on the ranch. Jake had also spent most of his life with just his family, but being in a public high school allowed him the chance to finally make new friends. Though he was a quiet kid, Jake was excited for the chance to make friends, and he quickly did. He had a close circle of friends, most of which were other boys in town. They were a group with low-key energy, introverts who loved to camp, take care of their motorcycles, and enjoy their rural lives. When Stephanie turned 18 years old, she got married to her boyfriend, a 19-year-old named David Jackson. Stephanie had met David when he had come through Gunnison with a traveling carnival months earlier. They were married in 2003. As a wedding gift, Rudy gave Stephanie and David early access to her inheritance so that she could buy a house with her new husband. He gave her $30,000. Stephanie used the money to rent out a house with David in Denver, which was about four hours away from the rest of her family in Gunnison. After high school with Stephanie living in Denver, Jake decided to stay on the ranch, even though most of his friends had moved out to apartments to live on their own. Rudy was getting quite old, and Jake was responsible for taking on whatever Rudy couldn't. Eventually, Rudy stopped being able to do much work at all on the ranch. In November of 2009, a tragedy struck when Rudy Rudaba passed away at the age of 85. Jake was 23 years old, and Stephanie was 24. After his death, Rudy had left something for each of his biological children and stepchildren. Stephanie had already received a large chunk, but would receive even more. Deborah inherited the 7-Eleven ranch, but Jake received nothing. Surprisingly, he was okay with that. Jake assumed that he would eventually inherit the ranch and share it with one of Rudy's sons from his first marriage who lived in Texas. Jake knew that the property would be worth millions and was confident that he would be set for life if he got the ranch in the end. With Rudy gone, the full care of the ranch fell to Jake a task that was nearly impossible. So much of the ranch needed to be fixed. The technology needed to care for the animals and the plants was outdated or missing altogether. The fences were rotting away. And Rudy and Deborah had amassed more things that they could store, making the ranch look like a messy junkyard, more than the fine property it had once been. Jake lived in the lodge, a building that was meant to host large dinner parties for campers or other big gatherings, but it had been so overrun with Rudy and Deborah's stuff that there was hardly enough room for his bed. With just Jake to care for so much and a worsening drought in the Colorado area, money grew tight for the rutabas. They sold off livestock and stopped hosting as many hunting trips in order to focus on caring for the property. Despite all of his hard labor, Jake wasn't receiving any paychecks for his work. Nevertheless, he continued to give his all to the ranch, operating on the assumption that it would all one day pay off when he finally inherited it. Because he wasn't getting paid, Jake had to find other means to get money and to have some financial independence from his family. On top of his back-breaking labor at the 7-Eleven ranch, Jake spent his spare time cutting and selling firewood, working for landscaping companies, looking into starting his own chimney sweep business, and was even selling marijuana to college students in the area. When these side jobs didn't pay off, Jake was forced to ask Deborah to give him some cash so that he could do small things like hang out with his friends at their favorite local bar, the Alamo, or go see a movie in town. One summer, Jake worked on a fishing boat in Alaska and made $15,000. But when he returned, his mother demanded that he give her that money so that she could put it into keeping the ranch afloat. Their issues with money made Deb and Jake's relationship grow strained. Jake began to resent the ranch, but he was unable to walk away from it. He felt obligated to his family and didn't want to give up the possibility of a big payout once he inherited it. Additionally, after Rudy's death, Deborah took the loss hard and fell into a deep depression. Her depression, tensions with money, and the increasing likelihood that the ranch Rudy had worked so hard on for for 50 years could fail was taking a toll on the entire family. Three years later in 2012, David and Stephanie Jackson, Deborah's oldest daughter and son-in-law, decided to move back home to Gunnison to be closer to her family In the near decade that they had been married, they had a young boy together, and Stephanie wanted to raise her son in the country like she had been. Stephanie, a skilled horsewoman, went back to working on the ranch by providing horseback rides for tourists and locals, and David started working at Gunnison Vintage Auto. Jake was less than thrilled to have his sister back home. The siblings had never gotten along very well, But after their return to Gunnison, things grew even worse. Jake was concerned that Stephanie had only returned to take the ranch from him. The ranch he believed was his rightful inheritance, given all that he had put in over the years. Because of this rift, Jake and Stephanie largely kept away from each other as much as possible while living at the ranch together. The same couldn't have been said about David though, Stephanie's husband. Jake especially didn't get along with David. He found him to be arrogant, annoying, and secretly Jake thought that David was potentially violent. He would joke with his friends that he considered keeping a gun nearby at all times, just in case David would ever attack him. Despite the tension growing in the family now that Stephanie had moved home, everyone was committed to keeping the ranch afloat. Deborah, still struggling with depression, put even more pressure on Jake to work harder for the ranch. Even though he was dedicating all of his time to it, she would even complain that anything that went wrong on the ranch was Jake's fault she would blame him for not working hard enough or well enough to keep things running smoothly. Stephanie, David, and Jake were also at odds over who was actually in charge, who worked hard, and the big question of who would eventually take over. Jake felt sure that he had a stronger stake in inheriting the ranch because he had worked there nearly his whole life and Stephanie had already gotten her inheritance from Rudy, the money for her house. Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plug, or Chris Hart. BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on all the action. BetOnline, where the game starts. In January 2013, tensions reached an all-time high in the family when David brandished a gun at Jake during an argument after Jake had blocked David's car in while he was plowing snow. Jake threatened to file a restraining order against his brother-in-law, but he never followed through. Deborah, though, had had enough of the hostility between her children. She declared that Stephanie and David couldn't be on the ranch at the same time as Jake, forcing them to move out to an apartment in town. After being forced to move, Stephanie was furious, saying that Jake was controlling her mother's life. By May of 2015, Jake was 29 years old and still living at home. He spent most nights going to his favorite bar with friends, where he would only ever order a Coca-Cola. Jake had developed a solid routine that he stuck to. He'd work on the ranch, drive into town to spend a few hours at the gym working on jitsu, then headed to the Alamo to have a drink or play pool with friends. He'd order the same drink, sit on the same stool, and hang out with the same close-knit group of friends night after night. Jake's friends always could rely on him and were proud of his improvements he'd made to better his life. After starting to practice jiu-jitsu at a local gym, Jake had started to focus more on improving all aspects of his life. He was eating healthy, trying to drink more water, and was committed to cleaning up the ranch. Stephanie and Deborah, on the other hand, were growing more and more angry towards Jake. Stephanie continued to tell her mother that Jake was controlling her, and Deborah was growing fed up with what she perceived as Jake neglecting his responsibilities. By mid-May 2013, Stephanie was telling her friends that she thought things were going to change, claiming that her mom was going to take back control and kick Jake out of his home on the ranch. On May 15th, 2015, after a long day working at the 7-Eleven ranch, Jake went to a movie with his friends, something that they did often. While there, they made plans to hang out the following day. But the next day, Jake didn't show up. Something that was deeply unlike him. Jake was always the one to confirm plans, triple check that they were happening, and arrive right on time. His friends were worried, but tried to push away their concern. After nearly a week had passed and no one had heard from him, Randy Martinez and Nate Lopez, two of Jake's close friends, decided to go check in with his family. On May 20th, they went to the 7-Eleven ranch to talk with Deborah Rudaba. As they drove up to the main house, they saw Jake's truck and motorcycle parked in the driveway, and Jake's dog, Elmo, was running around outside, but there was no sign of their friend. Deborah answered the door and told Randy and Nate that Jake had left for Reno, Nevada for a mixed martial arts competition, She told them that he wasn't responding to their texts because he had dropped his phone in the water and had forgotten it in a bag of rice used to dry it out before he had left. Randy and Nate weren't buying this though. Jake's MMA partners at the Jitsu gym told them that they didn't know of any trips to Reno and that Jake was currently taking a break from training because of a small injury. A few more days passed, and there was still no word from Jake. His friends would call the ranch, but Deborah kept reassuring them that she'd let them know when he would be back. But for Randy and Nate, they knew that something was off, and they didn't want to wait any longer if their friend was in trouble. They filed a missing persons report with the Gunnison County Sheriff's Office.
1: After Gudison County Patrol were alerted that Jake Millicent was missing, Sergeant Mark Michael went to the ranch to follow up. There, Deborah told him that Jake had left with a friend that she didn't know. She thought that they were going camping in Reno. She told Officer Michael that taking off like this was just something that Jake did, and he left his cell phone behind. The officer believed her and marked the case status as unfounded, effectively closing the investigation into Jake's disappearance. But Jake's friends were shocked by Deborah's characterization of Jake. In the years that they had known him, he had never just taken off like this. He was reliable, steady, and committed to his friends and family. Randy, Nate, and a few others close to Jake knew that they needed to keep pushing detectives to look more. With their unceasing pressure, Officer Michael called the ranch again. This time, Deborah admitted that her and Jake had been fighting because he was almost 30 years old and still living at home. She added to her original story that when he allegedly left, Jake had taken a gun, a wad of cash, and camping equipment in the car of someone she didn't recognize. She assured the officer again that he was fine but made it clear that she wasn't trying to keep tabs on where he was anymore. By June of 2015, a month after they had last heard from him, Jake's friends met with Officer Michael again, this time at the sheriff's office. They informed police that they had talked to Ray, Jake's dad, but Ray hadn't heard from his son in weeks and wanted a missing persons report filed. Even though Officer Mark Michael didn't think it was necessary, police reopened the case. Jake's friends tried to file reports of their own, but were told that only family could do that, which is not true in Colorado. Despite their continued calls, the police believed what Deborah had to say about where Jake went, a story that was later confirmed by Stephanie and David. Nonetheless, Jake's friends were sure that something was wrong. They kept filing reports and calling the ranch to see if anyone had heard from Jake. By the end of summer, Deborah finally filed her own missing persons report, perhaps to appease Jake's friends, but told police that Jake did cocaine, steroids, and hung out with a bad crowd. She also claimed that when he left, he had taken a book from her called How to Disappear Without Leaving a Trace. With this, she made it clear that the police shouldn't be looking too hard for her son. Randy Nate and Jake's friends, in response, made a Facebook group called Where's Jake Millicent to try and raise awareness for his disappearance. On October 19th, 2015, they posted pictures of David riding Jake's beloved Harley-Davidson motorcycle and claimed that he was selling Jake's bikes. In the months since Jake disappeared, Stephanie and David had moved back to the farm. Jake's bike was his prized possession. He wouldn't even let his friends touch it, let alone his brother-in-law, who he didn't get along with. The tips and pictures from the Facebook group were shared with police. And finally, they were beginning to believe that there was more to the story than they were being told by Jake's family. If Jake was just on a trip... Why were they getting rid of his stuff? If they believed he'd return from this trip, why would Stephanie and David move back home? Things were just not adding up. Weeks turned to months, and no one had heard from Jake. His friends joked that he would just come home one of these days with a wild, fun story. But deep down, they all secretly feared the worst. Though Jake's friends thought the department was deliberately ignoring their pleas for help, the department emphasized that the process is just slow. They only had one investigator for the entire county. By the winter of 2015, with Jake gone, care of the 7-Eleven ranch fell to David, something David did not like. He grew resentful towards Stephanie for staying warm in the lodge while he slaved away outside on her family's farm. He threatened to leave her, and even went as far as to shooting a bullet into the floor to scare her. In early 2016, as it approached nearly a year without Jake, Deborah Rudabaugh was diagnosed with stage four cancer. The police, who had slowly been building up their case, grew concerned that she would die before they could get enough answers. They enlisted the help of the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and were able to get a search warrant to look around the 7-Eleven Ranch. On July 17, 2017, over two years since Jake was first reported missing, search teams and search dogs went through the entire 700 acres of the 7-Eleven Ranch. And within a day, news began to spread that they had found a body wrapped in a tarp, buried under a pile of manure near the horse corral. It was the body of Jake Millison. With his body found on the property, it was clear that Jacob Millicent had been killed, and the primary suspects were the three members of the family that lived on the property, Deborah, Stephanie, and David. Police called each in for questioning, and after months of keeping up a lie, their stories started to unravel. Police could finally see that everyone had a means or motive for killing Jake. Deborah had been complaining about Jake, calling him a freeloader, and Stephanie egged her on and had years of hatred towards him pent up. And David had been aggressive towards Jake in the past. In the search, investigators also found a will that was dated for three weeks before Jake went missing. Debra had changed her will from leaving everything to Jake, to leaving everything to Stephanie and David, including the 7-Eleven ranch. Jake would have been left with absolutely nothing, despite all of the years of giving his all to the property. With the news of her updated will coming to light, Deborah felt concerned and was ready to confess what had happened to her only son, Jake. Deborah told police that on the night of the 15th, she had come home from working at a nursing home and was beyond exhausted. She had asked Jake to do an errand for her, but when she saw that he had only done half before leaving to go to a movie with his friends, she couldn't handle it anymore. After Jake had gotten back home and fallen asleep, Debra went into his room and shot him in the head as he slept in the early hours of May 16, 2015. Debra claimed that after murdering her son, she used Yankee ingenuity to move his body, using toe straps, a wench, a tarp, and an ATV. She was adamant that Stephanie and David knew nothing. After hearing her confession, police doubted that Debra could have moved his body on her own. Suffering from late-stage cancer, she was very petite, weighing less than 100 pounds. But Jake weighed 180 to 190 pounds. How could she have rolled a body more than double her weight off a bed and then dragged it outside to bury it? Furthermore, she had gallbladder surgery just days before the murder. She had been ordered to not lift anything heavier than 5 pounds or she would rip her stitches out. Her doctor's appointment days later confirmed that her stitches were perfectly fine. Police knew that there was more to the story and decided to interview Stephanie and David, the two who had the most to gain from Jake's death. The couple denied any knowledge of the murder, but a polygraph test showed that that was a lie. Stephanie's cell phone records showed a text at 3.17am on May 15th that said, It's time to play. It was deleted six minutes later. Later that day, she posted on Facebook, Have you ever been woken up with such awesome news that you wanted to run outside screaming? While she maintained that she knew nothing until a couple months ago, Stephanie's texts and posts suggested that she knew for much longer than that. Jake's friends also suggested that Deb, no matter how mad she was at her son, would never have killed him. She was his mother and didn't have a strong enough motive to But Stephanie did. With Jake dead, she would be the sole inheritor of the ranch. Surprisingly, Jake Jackson seemed to agree and implicated his wife in the murder. He told police that after everything, he had a strong feeling that it could have been her.
0: Finally, in March of 2018, Gunnison County police arrested Deborah Rudabaugh, Stephanie Jackson, and David Jackson for the murder of Jacob Millison. Though they believed they weren't getting the full story, Deborah was adamant that she was the one who pulled the trigger, killing Jake. Police then assumed that Stephanie and David had helped her hide his body. Deborah Rudabaugh was charged with first degree murder, tampering with the deceased human body, and abuse of a corpse. Stephanie and David Jackson were charged with accessory to first degree murder and abuse of a corpse. After months of back and forth with prosecutors, Deborah pleaded guilty to second degree murder for Jake's death. She was sentenced to 40 years in prison, which began on May 13, 2019 nearly four years to the day that Jake died. But after spending only a few months in prison, Deborah succumbed to her cancer and died at the age of 70 while in custody. Seeing her mother's fate, Stephanie and then David both ended up pleading guilty to charges. David was given 10 years in prison for his role in Jake's murder, while Stephanie was given the max sentence of 24 years in prison for a single count of tampering with the deceased human body. David is eligible for parole in 2023, while Stephanie is eligible in 2029. In the years that they searched for their friend, Randy and Nate and others now have the answers as to what happened to him. They were grateful that justice had been served, but yet, in addition to the devastating loss of Jake, they were frustrated with the way that Deborah, Stephanie, and David had mischaracterized Jake. His mom had called him a violent drug addict. His sister said that he was worthless, lazy, a waste of space. But for Jake's friends, this couldn't have been farther from the truth. Those who really knew Jake loved Jake, knew that he was loyal, kind, and dedicated. He was a man working hard for a brighter future, trying to better himself, and cared deeply for those around him. He only wanted what he thought was rightfully something he deserved. He was the victim of a greedy family who wanted to take away all that he had worked for. It's often said that friends are the family we choose. And it's cases like this that echo that sentiment. It's the diligent hard work of Jake's friends that helped to make sure that he wasn't forgotten about or lost. If they hadn't stayed so committed to finding answers, knowing that their friend wouldn't just pick up and leave, Jake's killers just might have gotten away with murder. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will see you next week.
1: Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio podcast. It's a Texas showdown the postseason and BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, BetOnline is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds, serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at BetOnline where the game starts.